0: All right. I'm here today with Dr. Baswati Bhattacharya, um, who is in India. We're, we're speaking now. It's morning your time, evening my time. Um, she is a clinical assistant professor at Weill Cornell University in Manhattan. She's also a Fulbright specialist in global public health um, and has done a lot of work with health freedom, especially having to do with indigenous medicines and in treatments. Um, I have asked... Dr. Basawati, to come on the show today to talk primarily about what I see as a philosophical split between Western medicine or allopathic medicine and what I'm just going to call big picture holistic medicine. And that encompasses a lot of things, and I'm not even sure you would agree with that terminology, but uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for, for joining me. And Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Um, I guess my first question for you is what do you see as the fundamental philosophical difference between one of the things that you practice, which is Ayurveda, Ayurvedic medicine and Western medicine or allopathic medicine? So Western medicine, as we call
1: it, is actually not really Western medicine. Native Americans are much more Western than, you know, the, the white man's medicine, which is pharmaceutical medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, the homeopathic medicine tradition, osteopathic, chiropractic, napropathic, all of these are Western medicines. Mm-hmm. and Western medical systems. So when we say Western medicine, it's kind of co-opting that the only people that matter in the West are the ones that do pharmaceutical medicine. So it's inconvenient for us because we know that many people that talk about Western medicine are contrasting it to the East. And certainly they are contrasting it to things like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, Korean medicine, compo. With the pharmaceutical medicine. So I just want to put that in there because I know that sometimes we'll end up using the term Western medicine, but I'm totally not disrespecting the traditions of the West and the Western um, indigenous peoples. That said, allopathic medicine, um, which is usually called conventional medicine or mainstream medicine, is generally emphasizing the pharmaceutical intervention as the way to go. So the schools that are called, you know, the MD or the medical doctor schools, they have a philosophy that if you have a problem, you split it up into the system that it's um, showing its symptom and and then you treat that symptom. So if you have hypertension, it's an antihypertensive, and it only affects the blood pressure. If it's a arrhythmia of your heart, then you do an antiarrhythmic. If it's diabetic, an anti-diabetic. If it's a thyroid, it's an antithyroid. So you just have this suppression of symptoms, and it really focuses on that symptom, which is very amazing that we can find out the molecules that cause those symptoms, and then find a way to either subvert, suppress, or annihilate those molecules. And that's all well and good. But, you know, when you use a bulldozer to kill a mosquito, you end up having a lot of damage in the area around that mosquito. Mm -hmm. And so the traditional systems that are ancient in different parts of the world, wherever that world Whatever continent that is, they tend to emphasize ecosystems and balance in nature. And I think that's the biggest difference that I found in clinical medicine. So to understand that when you cut a tree down in the forest, it will hurt the other trees unless you're careful about the way that you cut it down. So that ecosystem is so important. And Ayurveda certainly, and I'll primarily use Ayurveda and yoga as examples since that's where my uh, expert, my formal quote unquote credentialed expertise is. Ayurveda certainly talks about the balance of nature and the ecosystem and the human being being an element in that ecosystem. And so when you tr- treat a headache, you don't just give a headache killer, you give something that addresses, first you have to talk to the person and find out, well, why do you have a headache? You know, there are so many causes of headaches. One of them might be temporal arteritis, which is a medical emergency. One of them might be a concussion from a motor vehicle accident that happened in the last week or the last day. But unless you ask the questions, you're not going to know whether it's at that end of the spectrum of a medical emergency versus something that is more long-term, such as uh, indigestion. Chronic indigestion is one of the leading causes of headache, according to Ayurveda, because the mm-hmm. food does not get digested properly. It needs somewhere to go. Molecule from the gut, which modern medicine doesn't want to admit actually happens. And yet there's so much evidence in the surgical literature that people that don't eat solid food for days at a time develop spaces uh, leakage spaces. They don't, I don't want to use the word leaky because then you know then we'll have to admit that there's something called leaky gut. So what mm-hmm. they do is they say there are desmosomes that get interrupted, and there is you know um, passive flow of material from the inside of the gut into the vascular system or the interstitium, and then that passes around through the tissues and makes its way around the body. Well, yeah. So basically, what you're saying is you have leaky gut, and you get molecules that are not digested that end up in the vascular system, and they get into Um, You know, they have to get presented to the brain and to different parts of the body. And
0: now we're realizing they they get presented to parts of the body that they shouldn't be being presented to.
1: Well, they will get presented as a functional physiological um, response of the body going to immune cells and saying, hi. This foreigner has come, take a Mm -hmm. look at him, and we need to present antibodies against him, or we need to figure out how to digest him and get him out of here. Mm -hmm. So, the process of digestion is so beautifully elaborated in Ayurveda. The problem is that, number one, it's in Sanskrit. (laughs) So, you know, all of us are on our way toward learning Sanskrit, but some of us are further ahead than others. And so, people don't know that language and the translations that have happened are anywhere from ludicrous to silly to malicious and mm-hmm. i say that because before i would just take the english translations when i was just a medical doctor starting to read some of these books and i said oh good there's an english translation i'll read it and i would read it and it seemed really disjointed and it seemed kind of odd but Um, I would read it because I would just trust that those translators were correct. And it, you know, there's a whole process of the art of translation, whether you're a translator at the UN or whether you're translating documents for some other technical Uh, you know, like, let's say you're a marketing person, the context and the idiomatic usage of words is so important. And we know that in other areas of society. So why wouldn't it be in medicine that a person that's translating needs to understand clinical medicine as well as English really well, as well as Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things don't get translated well. So the digestion, um, the science of digestion, if you'll, if you'll put it that, uh, which is called pachana it's the cooking of a med- or of a food or an item that comes into the body and how it's taken and digested and uh, incorporated into the body or thrown out as a waste product that science is so beautifully elaborated in ayurveda and It's considered to be one of the main causes of all disease because if you don't digest it properly, it ends up being a product of inflammation. Now, when modern medicine catches up to it, they will definitely say, oh, we discovered it. They'll give someone a, you know, a, a Nobel Prize for it, and they will take credit for it because they say, we discovered it. What's amazing to me is that it's already written in Ayurveda. Just because you can't translate it from Sanskrit doesn't mean it's not there. So when I talked to the wise men, I've gotten into this um, thing in life where I started meeting these very old wise men who are um, wanting to share the knowledge with people before they die. And so I sit with them for hours and hours and hours every time I'm in India, and I just... Listen to what they're saying. And now I've had to learn Sanskrit. So I'm, you know, three, three plus years into my study. And I can read it now. And I when I read the terms, I realize, oh, that's not a very good English translation. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to take some of these concepts and understand the urgent issues of today, such as irritable bowel syndrome, where people can't digest properly. Um, neurologic issues that happen when people can't digest properly, and it goes and it seeds into their nerve, you know, their mm-hmm. nervous system or their neurologic uh, passages. And the whole thing going on with Corona, whether it's a respiratory disease or a blood disease, but it's certainly a pandemic. And as a public health specialist, it's so important for me to understand this pandemic. So I've kind of been following it. And what I see is that Ayurveda absolutely has so much wisdom to offer, but nobody wants to listen to it. It's very strange
0: to me. So one question that, that, because a lot of times when we talk about, traditional medicines, um, you know, traditional Chinese medicine, or even homeopathy, or anything that's not allopathic medicine, the response that we'll get is, well, you know, that's, there's, there's no, there aren't clinical studies showing that that works, that this, this isn't something that was arrived at by doing scientific research work by doing scientific research. It's just, you know, old wives' tales stuff that, you know, people have come up with. How do you respond to critiques like that?
1: You know, and it's a really important argument. So when we talk about the differences between mainstream medicine and traditional medicine, like we did earlier, we say, oh, go back to nature and understand the ecosystem. And People say, yeah, yeah, that's very foo-foo. You know, it's there. I suppose ecosystems are important, but we want to get to real science. We want to get to hardcore stuff. So when you come to trying to prove to people about evidence, the systems of evidence that are set up are actually, on one hand, you can say they're clever. On the other hand, you can say they bully. What they do is they say, our way is the only way. So there's no easy way to study an ecosystem so what we're going to do is we're going to study one small part of it and we're going to isolate that one small part of it and understand it and then we're going to extrapolate to the whole and they think that that is true so if i take one leaf in the forest and then i go and i search for other similar leaves and i see what that leaf does in isolation and i might get down to even its molecules and say this is what it does can I extrapolate what that leaf does in the context that I took it to what it does in the entire forest? No, I can't because that leaf's purpose is different depending on the, the height that it grows in the forest, what other trees are around it, what other animals or bugs or, you know, other, um, plants are next to it. And that contextual idea is lost. And so when we Mm -hmm. do a double blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial, it is a way to eliminate bias. I totally get that, and I understand that that's important. But there's also what we call the reality factor, which is um, in various uh parlance of different people that are doing epidemiology. Sometimes they say we need to do more whole systems research, or they say we need to do PCOR, patient-centered outcomes research. So yes, we find that a particular vaccine works really well in the studies we did, but the people we studied don't um, have the same underlying baseline medical problems, or those people eat different foods, or they have different weather uh, around them every day, or there's something in their lifestyle that is so different than the mass population that they are not what's called a representative sample. Mm-hmm. And so there's an entire field of epidemiology that's exploring when and when not uh, to generalize to larger larger populations. And unfortunately, you have everything from journalists who, you know, amplify what they hear to the scientists who are not clinicians who say, oh, but if there's not evidence. And I say, if you want to have a discussion of evidence, you know, sit down, let's order a cup of tea and talk about this. And when I start talking, it's it's really Obvious in 99% of the time that these people are really just, they've got their heads up their backside. They don't know. They're just puppeting what they've heard about what evidence is. Mm -hmm. And the evidence is oftentimes so isolated it's not relevant, which I already spoke about. Mm -hmm. The evidence is very biased towards pills, which you can double blind. You know, it's very hard to double blind acupuncture. I kind of know when you're putting a needle into me for acupuncture, how are you going to do that? Oh, we have sham, we have sham acupuncture. You know what? You put (laughs) a needle into the body anywhere and it's going to invoke a response. So, okay, a sham acupuncture might work, but maybe not. There have been studies on homeopathy using double-blind and placebo-controlled trials, which are, you know, very um, well done in homeopathy. And those studies have shown that homeopathy works, but they've been thrown out. Why? Because we can't figure out what the mechanism of action is. It's not plausible. So for it to be evidence, it has to follow something called the HILLS criteria. These are these logical uh, criteria that follow the paradigm of Um, we can say science, we can say the logic of medicine. And it has to do with things like if you don't see it, you don't believe it. But then I say we don't see electricity, but we believe in electricity. I've never seen an electron, but I believe that electrons exist. Um, You know, I've never seen uh, Saturn and its rings, but I believe it exists. Then they say, "Oh, we can't just blindly believe the, you know, the old texts from thousands of years ago. We need to prove it." I will tell you that during medical school, I've had you know a dozen years in training, and years after that, I've been at Cornell for seventeen years. People, when they're learning medicine, do not go back and check the evidence to see whether it was right. They Mm -hmm. just believe blindly that their professors tell them. So if a medical doctor can believe blindly that their professor told them, then why can't an indigenous healer believe blindly that her teacher taught her? Mm -hmm. So there's a double standard there. In addition, when you're talking to your professor or listening to your professor and the professor says, this is a good study and that's not a good study... We assume that those high index journals are accurate. And in the last 10 years, you know, it's more than 10 years now that editors come out and they say, number one, uh, this study was not um, objective because it was funded by either a stakeholder or a person that had a serious, you know, nefarious purpose, i.e. they funded the study. And so they have a definite um what should we say bias towards its outcome number two i as a young um i think i was in my master's degree i used to do ghost writing and i did it very innocently because i thought it was you know i was helping to learn medical science but what i was doing is writing for doctors who don't have writing skills and then as i was writing for a company that company would skew my writing. they would pay me and then Uh they would skew my writing And then they would publish it in journals by paying the journals. And these were funded by Merck, Beringer, Engelheim. We had contracts with Glaxo. We had had a lot of really great lucrative contracts that would pay for me to go on these fancy trips. And I thought I was really important because I was going to all these prestigious places and staying in five-star hotels. But what they were basically doing is paying us as writers to hobnob with these doctors to write articles and then publishing them. And uh, the doctors were, you know, getting treated really well because a doctor's prestige comes out of, you know, what he or she publishes. So, wait, are so you, what are you about you that about, bias?
0: Are you talking about articles in medical journals? Are you talking about articles about yes. studies or are these like yes. fluff piece articles?
1: All all wow. of the above that you said. But, you wow. know, even recently, there was that whole vaccines thing um, that came out where
0: it was published
1: in three or four journals. And then they found out that actually there was a lot of um, under the hand stuff going on. And there were data there that countries were saying, how do they come up with these yes, data? We yes, don't even have yes. that number of COVID. The surgesphere.
0: The surgesphere. Uh,
1: exactly. Okay. Yeah. I didn't want to mention the name, but yeah. yes. It's, it's, and the yeah. people that were there were from prominent medical schools, very mm-hmm. prominent, you know, some of the schools I've graduated from. So, um, so I was quiet and I was quiet because I know that these kind of things happen. In addition, you have editors that allow things. I, I, Um, quietly looked at an article which by the way is not really legal the peer reviewer sent me the article and said hey Bhashwati what do you think of this I said are you asking me as a formal reviewer he said no not formally just take a look at and tell me what your thoughts are and I said let me ask you something you're a white male why do you get to be on the journal as an editorial board member? And I don't, but you want me to do the work. Mm -hmm. And he was like, "Ah, no, come on, do it for me as a friend. So I did, I reviewed the article and I gave him a review of it. And I said, this is biased. I know one of the authors, he has a absolute, you know, commercial interest. This is a COVID related actually article Mm -hmm. and he's definitely biased and he sits in a nice position of power And he said, you better be careful about what you say, because he's a person of influence. I said, yes, he is. But I'm just telling you that this article has bias in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the next day he published the article. And I was like, I thought you asked Mm -hmm. for my input for some constructive reason it's like yeah but you know the author really pressured us and um, you know they're they're part of our group and so this kind of stuff tells me that what's published in the literature as quote-unquote evidence that all of these people come out and say well you know it has to be in the evidence there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot of black stuff happening there that's mm-hmm. not even mentioning the money factor there's so much money that passes under the tables for these things right and if you look look at where people's biases are. They are publishing those biases. I think Ayurveda works. I'm going to publish articles that think Ayurveda works, right? Where are the articles that show that Ayurveda didn't work? And why didn't it work? And what was the problem of why it wasn't working? Those are not analyzed. Those are not published. Then you have the whole area of negative studies, which a lot of people have written about, where For example, they'll do a study, some group will do a study, and they'll find that, oh, gosh, this drug didn't work the way we expected. Instead of publishing it, they put it aside because they feel like they're stupid for not understanding why it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a negative study. And because it didn't get published, those data never get seen. right. We never
0: see that. Yeah, we never see that. You know, so
1: one of my friends worked on one of the antidepressants, and they kept getting negative studies. And so they didn't publish them. Mm -hmm. I said, Why don't you publish this? And he said, Well, Mm -hmm. we're finding something really weird. We find that young people who take antidepressants become homicidal. Homicidal or suicidal, that's just not good for business. You know what I'm saying? I said, right, but that's an important thing to publish, don't you think? And you know what's like, funny? Yeah, what's- but that's not gonna
0: make us money. Here's what's funny I- about that. when when antidepressants were first starting to really become the thing and everybody was taking them, I think this was around like the early nineties. Um, uh-huh. one of the homeopathic doctors who I know, um, you know, I just asked her about it. I asked her what she thought about that. She said, you know, a 10 years from now, we're going to see an increase in violence. We're going to see an increase in um, that's erratic exactly right. behavior. She, she knew that without any study, you know, she, that's just. And I also,
1: from. yep. And I'm talking about the same time in the nineties and my uh, colleague was working at one of the big pharmaceutical giants and said, you know, the FDA only requires three positive studies. I said, well, what about Mm -hmm. these negative studies? And he said, well, we don't have to publish them. And he was very casual about it. I said, do you feel okay about that? I mean, we got an ethics education in medical school, didn't we? And he said, yeah, but I also got an education that I need to put my son through college.
0: Mm -hmm. So I need to keep my I'm going to pause you for a moment. Hang on just one second. So my friend says that he uh, needed to put his, he
1: said, it's true that I, need to be ethical but it's also true that I need to put my son through school mm-hmm. and when he said that I just got this shudder so I met him about six years later and he was really um, like socially he was a little bit withdrawn and he just didn't seem as confident and as normal and uh, normal meaning as sociable and mm-hmm. I I asked him how he was doing. And, you know, he said, you know, I've confided a lot of things in you. I hope you haven't ever talked about it to anyone. I said, no, not with your name. Of course I wouldn't. You know, it's not ethical for me to share what you told me. Besides, it's kind of sad. And he said, you know, I feel so guilty for what I did, because by that time, what you just said about the violence had already borne out. Mm-hmm. and he knew that those negative studies that he never published were responsible for many, many kids who have died on school grounds and in shopping malls and at nightclubs, and that violence continues to happen today in the U.S., even more so now. So, so
0: what you're I saying, wonder about evidence. Yeah, and, and uh-huh. what you're saying just about that example in particular is really interesting because you know, there've been written, there've been articles written about that and a lot of speculation about it. And I think there's, you know, there is some evidence to support that that's, that's come out. But when I talk with my friends or when I write something saying, you know, Hey, I think there might be a link between school shootings and all these kids on drugs that, you know, they weren't on before I get called a lunatic, you know, I get called a conspiracy theorist.
1: So who is saying that? You know, the question is who is saying that? Because just normal people.
0: If, just normal people. So normal people.
1: Yeah. So you've got to look at what their, um, what their baseline is. If they think that watching the television, whether it's Fox News or CNN or ABC, if they think that that's what news is, then that's where they're getting informed. That's where they're mm-hmm. getting educated. At the Harvard School of Public Health, there's an amazing program put together on the um, effect of guns. And they've been very um, bold about putting that program together. And, you know, I I support them because I think it's important that we get to know about guns. Mm-hmm. So I went up to the speaker, you know, after he gave this wonderful talk at um, this uh, big public health uh, day. And he talked about how guns have this, that and the other um, effect. And if you just look at it in terms of the evidence and you compare it to other interventions or other effects, that it's astounding that we would not take guns away and stand behind the excuse that people have the freedom to do what they do. If that's the case, then why don't we let people, um, why don't we let drugs, you know, out in the open? Why don't we make marijuana completely legal for all purposes and heroin and opium and alcohol for all ages? And why not just let prescription drugs, you know, to anyone and everyone that want them if we're going to let guns out to everyone? And... um, And I said to him, well, what about the correlation between guns and antidepressants? Mm -hmm. And he got really uncomfortable. And I asked Mm -hmm. him about it. I couldn't understand why. And then I looked into it because, you know, I get this monthly alumni magazine from um, the School of Public Health. And it's very clear that Harvard from the beginning, which I actually didn't know, um, has gotten a lot of its funding from pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And on some yeah. level, they can speak out against guns because pharmaceuticals are not involved in it. But right. they can't speak out against pharmaceuticals because it's biting the hand that bite that uh, feeds you. So, go ahead. So, when I see that schools of public health, which are supposed to be the academic, objective uh, creators of evidence, and then I see that they are worried about the hand that feeds them and then how they're going to layer the evidence. It makes me realize that absolute white journalism, which I learned, you know, early on back when I was very young, is really not happening anymore between the Patriot Act and various filters of um, sponsors of publications or of news channels. Mm-hmm. There are so many people that feel entitled to bias the information because we've got a bizarre overlay of people who have learned marketing Mm -hmm. and how to get their product moving forward with people who are supposed to be public servants or objective knowledge purveyors. And when that overlap happens and the guy that sells the vacuum cleaner door to door becomes the guy that owns the vacuum cleaner, that owns the news channel, that gives out the information he's going to make sure that all the news comes through doesn't affect his vacuum cleaner sales. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that was not an issue back in the 40s and 50s, and maybe even into the the 60s it started happening. And so all of us who have grown up in the last, let's say, 50 years, 60 years, um, which is the majority of the people that are talking about this information and evidence and all the young mothers who are thinking about how pharmaceuticals affect their families – All of us think, oh, well, we need to have evidence. And if it's not evidence-based, I want to go back to a time before the 1940s when things worked. I want to go back to homeopathy, which was one of the best cures for so many diseases back in the 1800s. Hahnemann. Mm -hmm used to make medicines and he would travel from villages to villages because he'd get kicked out because he was using such a small amount of medicine that the pharmacists weren't making any money off of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dana Ullman, who's a a big homeopath in California, in Berkeley, was um, chatting with me about this story. And he said, you know, Hahnemann went and he needed a safe haven. So he'd go and he'd practice for the royal families and they would house him for years at a time and he would take care of their families. And so the royal families made the law. So they'd say, okay, Hahnemann gets to practice here. You can't bar him from from practicing. And so throughout the ages, the royal families, including the current royal family of England, uses homeopathy you know, far and above every other kind of medicine. And they don't feel any need to talk about it because their health is their private business. And because there's the monarchy on one side and then there's the parliament on the other, the parliament makes the rules and the parliament is funded by the pharmaceutical companies. But the monarchy remains loyal to homeopathy. Why? Because they know it works. They know it works. And uh, I talked with someone who is very close to Prince Charles, So this is only secondhand information. He did use homeopathy and he did use Ayurveda to get over his COVID case earlier this year. But it was considered to be bad press. And the pharmaceutical companies, the largest of which in Europe... The largest foundation in Europe is the Wellcome Trust, founded by Mr. Wellcome, who is a big pharmaceutical guy. And he's his, the history is actually kind of interesting. He took compounding of medicines back when they were powders, and they were specifically compounded to people, and he converted them into ready doses and put them into pills and created the Mm. technology for that, which is brilliant. But what it did is, let's say you need 80 milligrams as your optimal dose and I need 75. What he'll do is he'll create... A pill that's, let's say you know sixty five, it'll be neither right for you nor for me, but it'll be right for a majority of people. Right. and that way he can make a lot of money. and he's right. made billions of dollars and now he he, I say, but is trust because he didn't really have any healthy children that took over from him. His trust is responsible for so much of the pharmaceutical agenda in all of Europe and so many people mm. that are paid to be part of it. And I know people that have worked for the Welcome Trust and the ones that are ethical quit because they say they cannot believe how imperialist it is about its mm-hmm. um, philosophies. And I think that pharmaceutical medicine should be called imperialist medicine because it did arise during the time of British imperialism and spread around the globe with the mm-hmm. British empire. And it does have so many of the features of British imperialism, whether it's bullying or it's you know forcing people or it's just all the things we think about when we think well, about yes, certainly in
0: I, I, and I don't know that much about the history of it in Europe or even that much in in the UK but certainly in America the way that that medicine was really overtaken by the pharmaceutical interests you know they basically they they bought up, the political system, so that they could shut down homeopathic schools, shut down um, anything that that wasn't the allopathic school, they shut down the schools, they shut down hospitals. Um, And by coincidence, they also shut down a lot of um, medical schools that were exclusively for African-Americans and for women. So they sort of, they consolidated this, this whole industry by force. And it does, you know, from my perspective, it certainly looks like it's very comparable to imperialism because it's this, this, commercial entity coming in and saying, we're going to use force to stamp out any competition, essentially. And that's, you know, that was mid-19th century. The marketing. Yeah, and, and the marketing. And then, of course, you know, they their, their influence in the media and this whole um, narrative that everyone now buys into that I feel like is coming to a head right now. Because when I look at, you know, the way that people talk about um germs and infection, and it's to me it seems like it's very much from an allopathic point of view, and um you know that it's like there's there's no room there's no room in the mainstream discourse about this for anything else do you see do you see that too? I do, and I think what they've done is so
1: smart they have um gotten the mainstream population who are not so smart to be there spokesperson so you have people all over from housewives to journalists who go out and say what you need to do is avoid lockdown because it's ruining our economy or you know the people that are parrots for whatever message they're told that they should um, convey because they haven't done their own reading I -hmm. think it's unforgivable if a person wants to go out and talk about how they know the evidence, that they don't actually have any inkling of the history. So when I used to talk to my professors, you know, I was was a pretty good, um, well-liked student during my bachelor's, I'd say the first three years, because I didn't know very much. But Mm -hmm. as soon as I started really reading and then I would come to to class with questions, the professor started Not liking me. And I Hmm. wondered about that. I'd like, you should be excited that I found this book in the library that I'm reading and bringing to you. And they didn't want to hear it because what it did is it had, it forced them to change their worldview. Their paradigm would have to shift if they actually took in the data that I had found. So Hmm. I read this book, which I absolutely recommend you and others to read about the history of medicine in the United States. It's called The War on Bugs. It's written Hmm. by a gentleman named Will Allen. You can't get it very easily you know it's you're not going to find it everywhere but if you go online i think will allen sells it from his website and it talks about how pharmaceutical medicines developed in the 1800s as a byproduct of the leftover products from mining the halogens that left over so the chloride Mm -hmm. chlorine bromine and fluorine and how the purification of iron ore um in the making of steel created these byproducts and they needed to get rid of them because they were so toxic and so like what can we do with this and when kids were playing on the mounds of byproduct or near there they would inhale the fumes and some of them it would clear their asthma and so you have compounds like ipratropium bromide which um you know you have these halogens that are utilized in there or they found that these kids were wearing dingy clothes and they went and played in those areas and all of a sudden their clothes were spick and span white and they said hey Hmm. this chlorine chloride has a great Uh, a side effect. So chlorine became chloride and they made a salt from it that was fairly safe. And then they said, you can't ingest this, but you can use this to wash your clothes. And so you have chlorine bleach. And so one side of it became Dow, which is the Mm -hmm. industrial chemicals. And the other side became Merck, which is the medicinal hmm. chemicals. And so the chemical industry and its birth is amazing. I mean, I am a closet chemist. I love chemistry. Right. Um, and I love reading books about chemistry. And obviously, as a pharmacologist, there's a relevance there. But when I read the first edition of Goodman and Gilman's, which is the Bible of pharmacology, and I read the emphasis of chemistry, I realize the chemists took over medicine. Mm-hmm. and they made it seem that the only thing that's relevant is what is chemically possible what happens to physics what happens to biology what happens to ecology and botany and meteorology and all the other sciences if you want to talk about science based um evidence then you have to look at the other sciences and we are basically obsessed with chemistry today because it's closest to pharma you know big mm-hmm. pharma
0: and i, I just and, want to interject here mm-hmm. that um Sorry. You're, you're 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 not, you're not saying this as some, you know, outsider who knows nothing about chemistry, you have a PhD in pharmacology, and you have a PhD in Ayurveda. So you actually, you actually know what you're talking about here. It's not like you're criticizing. Well, we'd hope I do. Although. (laughs) Do, Do you have something to say about the PhD programs?
1: Well, I mean, I hope that what we learned in the PhD programs really made us knowledgeable. But I think mm-hmm. that beyond what I learned in the programs, I had to do a lot of reading. And still today, I spend you know hours per day reading. And I make sure that, like with COVID, there are thousands of articles out there. I have to filter through it. Mm-hmm. And when I talk with, with you know, all due respect to the people that are working in it, when I talk to some of these people who are experts, and by the way, they don't want me on the committees because... I, I give my opinion. I give my opinion as a scientist. And for some reason it's inconvenient, you know, for them. But when I talk with them and I say, well, have you read this study? They haven't read the study. I say, you are one of the experts in this area. Mm -hmm. You're sitting on the committee. How come you don't know about the study? Well, um, uh, it's not in a mainstream journal. Um, uh, I said what the WHO reported on it yesterday. Oh, well, I, um, uh, um, they're not aware of, of the data. I've no. been following some really great immunologists. I love the work of Johnny Kipnis. I don't know if you've read any of his work. No. He, re- he he works mainly with microglia. So it's the okay. cells in the brain that are supposed to cushion the nerve cells. And obviously since I did my uh, first degree in neuroscience, I'm, you know, very, and my, my, pharmacology PhD work was in neural development okay. with a fantastic scientist, Michael Sholansky at Columbia. Um, so when I was doing my PhD thesis work with him, And looking at the glial cells, these were at that time, this is, you know, several years ago, they were thought to be these cushion cells and they had no other function than to cushion and feed and kind of comfort. They were like the nurse cells around (laughs) the egg in the ovary. They were these cushion cells. Well, Johnny Kipnis went in and found out, you know, these cells are not just cushion cells. They're actually immune cells and they Mm -hmm. sit there and they, they just kind of sit like a couch potato. But when there's work to do, they put a gun in their hand and they go out and they shoot the, mm. the particular, you know, virus or bacteria so that it doesn't harm the brain. But sometimes. They misfire and they also shoot something that's an inflammatory chemical. Um, they're very good at ingesting metals that come in that shouldn't be there. And they're very good at delivering those metals to parts of the brain that use those metals as coenzymes and cofactors. And some of his work is really elegant. So he on, he knows um, immunology. There's also a guy named Bali Pulendran, who's in California. And there's a guy named Amulya Panda. These guys have been talking about COVID. They're all immunologists. And the reason I quote, both these three, is that um, the last two especially, they say what COVID has done is taught us as immunologists that we actually don't know what's going on. So Mm. why isn't that quoted in the evidence that the immunologists have realized that, what we thought is that you meet a particular antigen from a virus or a bacteria, you get an antibody in your system and that confers you with what is called adaptive immunity. Mm -hmm. You now have an antibody that's going to protect you for the rest of your life against the measles or the mumps or that particular virus or bacteria that causes a particular disease, right? So that was the thought around immunology. That is the classical modern immunology way of thinking and that's why we have all these vaccines, these you know, four 40 vaccines that we have to give to kids. Oh, it's because we give them adaptive immunity. Well, now they're finding that people who have COVID have a certain amount of antibody against COVID in their bloodstream. And then a month later, it's gone. Two months later, it's gone. Six months later, it's gone. It's as though they never had the illness. Where are those antibodies? So they're kind of scrambling and like, well, um, uh, maybe it got sequestered, you know, and it's hiding out. Well, you know, HIV can hide out, but the antibodies of HIV are not supposed to hang, hang out in like so, one place. They're supposed to circulate.
0: So let me Sorry. let me ask you this because I've um I've had some other doctors on and and people who we've talked about this issue, and my understanding of antibody immunity is that when you your body develops antibodies to let's say virus X. And it fights it off. It's out at the, the virus is gone. You know, a few months later, you're not producing those antibodies anymore, but you have the memory cells, which when they encounter the virus again, will jump to it and start producing it again. So So there are different kinds of antibodies, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But are you, so so you're saying there's some kind of antibodies that stay in your system regardless. They're not just waiting to be stimulated into existence.
1: The theory has been that those baseline antibodies circulate around all the time. Mm. The reason that we know that's true is that if you've had the measles vaccine, let's say 20 years ago, and I take a blood sample of yours today. I should be able to have a baseline of antibodies against measles in your system. That's how you validate that people right. have been vaccinated, right. right? Because you have those antibodies. If they weren't around and you had to wait till you saw measles again to produce antibodies, that means that you're not making antibodies, the right? The titer tests
0: wouldn't mean anything, basically.
1: So the titers tell us that you have a baseline of antibodies against that particular virus that you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And then, when you actively encounter it, you start making more. A better example is hepatitis. We have to have a baseline of hepatitis antibody, hepatitis B antibodies, so that if hepatitis ever comes into our system before it. it attacks us. Those antibodies will be like sentinels. They will raise the Mm -hmm. red flags and sound the horns and go to the top of the mountain and light the fire and say, hepatitis B is in the system. Go to those places where hepatitis B antibodies are formed and pull out a million of them. We need a few legions of soldiers now and send them to the whatever location they've been encountered.
0: Right, And it flows
1: through the blood system.
0: Now, what what are your thoughts on, there's been a lot um, in the press about T-cell immunity and about how even people who have never encountered COVID-19 before have some T-cell immunity to previous coronaviruses and that that's helping in their defense against, you know, once they're exposed to COVID-19, this previous exposure, um, the T-cells from that are helping. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: So I think the people that are saying this are grabbing at straws of previously understood immunity. And I think on on the theories that we've had so far, yes, it could be that previous other similar coronaviruses for the last 20 years that we've encountered, you know, from SARS and and MERS and all coming forward. Yes, we could have some immunity. However, if you look at some of these immunologists, like the ones I mentioned, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Kipnis talks about how we don't understand what T cell immunity is. We Mm -hmm. have to go back to the drawing table and rethink what we know because the data are showing, the evidence is showing that what we thought was the picture is not the real picture. It's not Uh, even part of the picture. We might have to redraw the whole thing. Is there something called T cells? Yes. But maybe we've been thinking it's B cells here and T cells here. You know, when my dad was working in immunology, uh, like, 20, 30 years ago, he talked about something called the natural killer cells. And Anthony Fauci shouted at him, insulted him, was so rude to him. I remember crying, watching the way this scientist talked to my father. My father was, you know, a, a scientist in his own right, but he happened to be a POC and he happened to be an immigrant and he had an accent. And so I, you know, I, I just looked at Fauci and I said, if he's so knowledgeable, why is he yelling at my dad? Mm -hmm. My dad talked about the natural killer cells as really important for HIV. My dad was an infertility specialist and he was finding these, you know, these, these immune cells in different places. And he wasn't, he was trying to understand what they were coming from. So, Now we come fast forward, you know, a couple of decades and natural killer cells are very much in the picture Mm -hmm. of understanding the T cell immunity. And without being an immunologist, but with being an avid reader and with plenty of, you know, formal education, I can tell you they don't have the picture correctly because they're not taking in the data that are inconvenient to them. If you go Mm -hmm. and see what's happening in kids that are vaccinated, don't tell me they don't have T cells. They do. Why are they getting sick? If you go to people in In other lands that have extremely high exposure to nature, they seem to do much better. Why? Mm -hmm. Is it because the chemistry of their immune system has more than just T cell immunity activated? Is it because they have, as you were saying, you know, antibodies to other kinds of Things that they've encountered in nature. The Mm. largest place to encounter viruses in a safe way is nature. That is why kids should play in the mud and the sand and the garden Mm
0: -hmm. because they
1: get that natural immunity. And today, kids play in safe playgrounds, they play inside the house, they play in concrete jungles in the urban cities. And We are not building our T-cell immunity the way the people who are 90 years old today, you know, or farmers.
0: Yeah. Well, and there have been studies showing that kids who are exposed more to nature, who are around animals more or in outdoor settings more, have lower rates of things like asthma and um, allergies and I forget what what all collection of of conditions, but yeah. I am going to have to get the names of those um, immunologists because I'm going to try and invite them on my show. Um, one, one thing that I definitely wanted to ask you about though was using Ayurveda with COVID nineteen. What do you have any experience with that? What what is being done? What is not being done? You know, so
1: um, I'm not going to plug it, uh, but I'm going to plug it. I've been writing a newspaper column every week since the beginning of March or end of March. And weekly, I write about themes that are important for understanding your immunity as it relates to COVID, as it relates to being in the world around us at this time. And so one of them, uh, one of the columns talked about the scientific basis for why we should put bitter oils in our nose as you know, just put your, put it on a Q-tip or put it on your finger and put it inside your nose and it will um, stimulate the mucociliary epithelium of your nose. This paper was written, I don't know, some five, seven years ago. And it's a great paper that shows that, you know, the bitters, whether it's quinine, maybe that's why hydrochloroquine works Mm -hmm. because the quinine, the bitter, um, it stimulates the the cells and it makes them put out this uh, mucus layer that protects against virus invasion. It makes the cilia, the hairs, start pushing things down and out so that if there's anything that's flying into your nose, whether it's pollen or it's a virus or it's an allergy, you know, an allergen, it will, uh, or smog or toxins, it will just, Pull those particles out or push, like, mm-hmm. wave those particles out. These studies have been done. This is evidence based. Why isn't it being integrated? There was a push about 20 years ago to something called translational medicine. If we were to just take the sciences out there today and really look at it and have every scientist that's written a paper that could be relevant to COVID to stand up and say, This is the piece of the puzzle that I think would be relevant, we would have so much more information. But the scientists today don't look at those things. So Ayurveda, you know, did from thousands of years ago, and people like me who are trying to bridge Ayurveda with science, uh, do look at it. So I looked at that paper. And I was like, Oh, this is why Ayurveda tells us that we should take some mustard oil. Mm -hmm. And, you know, dip your pinky into it and then stick it up your nose and line your nostril with it and then snort it lean back and snort it, get that mustard oil into your nose, it will give you a bitter, stimulus that will make those cells of your nose put out protective agents. Okay, that's one. Second is, if someone has any problem breathing on a baseline, or they're normally healthy and suddenly they start have a problem, steam inhalation is what everyone has been using. It costs next to zero. You just need to have, mm. you know, a source of heat to put a bowl of water on the stove, a pan of water, and then create steam, put a towel over your head and breathe in the steam for two minutes. And that will cut that entire set of symptoms um, in the bud and get rid of it. There are lots of people that have colds and they do steam inhalation. They use vaporizers. They put something in the vaporizer and they inhale the steam. People who've had the common cold have been doing this for a century. Why Mm -hmm. can't they understand that when you have a dry cough, that moisture, especially if you put a drop of menthol oil into it, I would even say put a drop of ghee or put a drop of mm. any kind of oil, um, as long as it's natural oil, into it. That's a really good thing to do. There's um, Young Living has a oil called thieves. I, I'm sure you know about aromatherapy. Yeah. There are so many aromatherapies that are used for respiratory disorders that are just essences of plant oils. And mostly menthol and thymol that you can put into those vaporizers or you can put them on, you know, in a bowl of water. So steam inhalation. Third is fumigate your house. So there's a whole science. I actually wrote an entire column on fumigation and how to take plants from outside. They can be juniper. They can be sage. They can be cedar. It depends on what part of the world you're in. And then put some fresh leaves, put some bark, put some aromatic spices. You can use Italian spices. You can use onion and garlic peel. You can use turmeric. You can use Indian spices like cumin or ajwain. And then you put a couple of drops of oil. Olive oil is good. Ghee is good. And you light it on fire. There's a dense smoke that comes up from that. You know, make sure you're holding it in a pan with a good handle. And then walk around your room and fum- obviously close your windows and then fumigate your entire room. Let that smoke go through your room. Clinics in India have been doing this for a thousand years. My teacher, who's uh, currently teaching me Ayurveda, um, does this in his clinic every day because there are COVID patients that come in and there are people Mm -hmm. with all kinds of illnesses that come in. So if you do that in your home, if you steam inhalate, if you put the bitter uh, in your nose, and then if you take some herbs in a tea every morning, a tisane. And the ones that we use in India that are really effective are not immune boosters. They're immune fortifiers and they fortify your immune system. And there have been plenty of clinical studies done on Guduchi, which is spelled G-U-D-U-C-H-I. You can get it at so many companies in America, which have been, you know, certified and checked for uh, all the aflatoxins and the heavy metals and all of the kinds of things that people are scared about, mm-hmm. um, and you know that FDA requires. And those uh, powders of guduchi, you just take a teaspoon of that and you put it in the morning. You can grind some black pepper. You can put some cinnamon in it. Um, if you have a dry cough, you put some uh yashti madhu which is called that's the sanskrit name um the hindi name is muleti m-u-l-e-t-h-i it's a sweet it's the bark of the licorice tree it's not going to raise your blood pressure if you just put a little bit of bark in there um the cinnamon is also bark and it gives a slight sweetness to it and then you you make a tea out of that you filter out the stuff the solid stuff and you drink the liquid you do this every day for you and your children and your you know spouse and your in-laws and whoever else lives with you, and it will slowly, gradually and absolutely fortify your immune system. So I don't see any COVID cases here where I'm staying in India. There's nothing. Why? Because everyone wakes up in the morning and they drink this tea, they take a shower and they put the bitter oil in their nose. And if they start to get sick, they do those, you know, the steam inhalation. Mm-hmm. And and uh, my PhD work was in actually in immune, immunity. So my Fulbright was on Ojas, huh. which is the concept of immunity. And then my PhD work was in the department of rasashastra, which is about heavy metals and how to mm-hmm. use them medicinally. So when I tell people about it, they're like, what do you mean? Heavy metals are dangerous. They're bad. Mm-hmm. They're toxic. And I say, do you know that you have metals in your body? Do you know that copper and iron are in your body? Manganese is absolutely essential. Do you know you have to have a host of at least, they found 30 different, almost 30 different metals in your body. How do you think you get them into your body? You get them in from plants that suck them up from the soil and the science of getting those metals into your body and making those, en- mostly they work on enzymes or inside of enzymes. So to get them back into the enzymes, do you know what that does? It cures a lot of chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. And here in India, two of the doctors that I work with absolutely work with cancer patients who have you know, been diagnosed and are not doing so well. They come and they take these heavy metals in the right way. The metals have to be made in the right way. And there's a whole science behind it. You know, we can do a long talk about this if you want. But once they do it, they cure of diseases that are incurable in ma- modern medicine. And my job, my oath as a medical doctor, before I did my you know, PhD stuff, was that I should try to help patients. It wasn't that I should prescribe pharmaceuticals and make pharma wealthy. It was that I should help the patients. And if we're patient-centered, it doesn't matter whether I use allopathic medicine or homeopathic medicine or osteopathic medicine or Ayurveda or TCM or whatever other medicine. My job is to help patients the patient. And so I became not just fascinated, but I became dutiful about learning about these other medicines because they help people. And with COVID, when there's quote unquote, no solution out there, what I have found is that these doctors that I'm around that absolutely have an excellent prescription for COVID uh, prevention, COVID mitigation when the first symptoms come and COVID Um, treatment when the symptoms get worse, um, and then COVID rehab after they come out, they're doing a really good job. The problem is that pharmaceutical medicine has come after most alternative medicines in every land saying, we are the only ones that have the right to treat COVID patients. And that becomes very complicated. It becomes very
0: complicated. Is that happening in India? That was going to be my question because it sounds like a lot of the things you're talking about, if you were to, if anyone was to advocate these very simple treatments here as being treatments that you could do to prevent or to treat COVID-19, the FDA would come smacking down. And they have, they've come smacking down on people for, for, you know, things as simple as vitamin D or, or IV vitamin C or those sorts of things. Um, It sounds like what you're saying is that's happening in India, too.
1: So, you know, um, I feel like the way you're saying it is just so unnecessarily complicated. FDA is not regulating what people can do. They do not regulate what people do. What they regulate is the drug or the food. They regulate the way the drug comes in, how it's sold, how it's marketed. They cannot regulate you taking it. And people should know that if you want to take vitamin D, that is your right. According to Diche, the Dietary Supplements Mm -hmm. Health and Education Act, you have the right to take it. Don't mix that up with the FDA's duty and responsibility to make sure that the drugs that are on the market are not
0: laden with poisons. That's what what their duty is, right? But what they so they they're they're really kind of overstepping their duty then because they've uh, just in this period alone with, with COVID-19, there have been clinics that were giving IV vitamin C and they shut those down. Um, And they've also, they've shut down people who have been promoting IV vitamin C. Actually that predates COVID. They've, they've, Um, Okay, so when you
1: give anything IV, that is practicing medicine, right? mm -hmm. Because anything you give invasively, even an Ayurvedic doctor that wants to put oil in the rectum, which is an amazing treatment that gets rid of so many neurological diseases. You have to know how to do it and what to do and how much to do and when to do it. But we do this. And if you are an Ayurvedic doctor licensed and and registered in India, you can do it as a treatment. And certainly people fly from all over the world to come and get treatment here. But if you do it in the US, U.S. and you're an Ayurvedic doctor and you know exactly what to do, but you do it in the U.S., it's considered the practice of medicine because it's invading the body. And so that's illegal. Same thing with injections. So you cannot inject vitamin C if you are claiming that it treats, prevents, mitigates, or diagnoses any disease because that is the realm of only MDs.
0: But even even if you are an MD...
1: You're saying if then it, you have to be careful about how you claim it, so how you how, claim it,
0: how for the practice of Ayurveda, I guess there's probably some of it that here in the U.S. would be considered medical and some that would not, but yeah, so so I
1: want to back up with that because yeah. your question was really good about you know what to do with Ayurveda. So people talk about Ayurveda as though it's a medical system, it mm-hmm. helps with medical disease but it also helps with maintaining health. So if you don't have covid and you're trying to prevent covid, it is your right to do what you think is useful for you. That is one of the individual freedoms that we maintain in the United States. And if you want to have a cup of chicken soup because you think it's going to help you feel better, that's your right to do it. If you want to have vegetarian chicken soup, you have the right to do that as well. So if you want to take um if you want to take let's say vitamin C as you gave, or if you want to take um, Guduchi, if you want to have a cup of tea that has cinnamon in it, if you want to do steam inhalation, no one has the right to stop you. Now, if you want to do it and put out a... A board outside your house saying, I'm treating COVID, come inside and have steam inhalation because it treats COVID. That's not legal because now COVID is a disease, right? So you can't go out there and practice for COVID because you don't have the right to practice medicine. So what people are doing is they're just being stupid. They're not aware of the law. Sorry to say that. But if they just go and they say, hey, I'm having a steam inhalation party, come to my Place and I will give you, you know, steam inhalation, mm-hmm. um, tailored with um, these essential oils. No one's going to stop you, but if
0: you say this is for COVID, you can't do that right now. What if you are a medical doctor, though? So, yeah, so there, there's, there's the whole issue about making medical claims if you're not a medical if, doctor.
1: If you're what a if- medical doctor, first of all, medical doctors are not that smart about drugs. I know. Thousands of medical doctors, and I know that I know a lot more about drugs than they do. Most of them are puppets. Mm -hmm. They are vocational artists that are um, just doing what their CME class told them to do. They don't know how to think, most of them. I went to a um, debate on vaccines a few weeks ago, which I know you were also part of. And I was afraid that because I'm not sitting in the U.S. right now, I wouldn't know very much. So I studied up for it. I got all these facts together. And I was so surprised that when I was speaking in that group of physicians, very few of them gave the kinds of facts that you would think that they would have. I was Mm -hmm. actually kind of shocked that none of them knew the status on how many vaccine candidates are out there, how many are in phase two, phase three trials, what kind of vaccines they are, what an mRNA and a double mRNA vaccine is. Many of them are just not up on it. So if you're an MD... And you're doing this. How much do you know about what's going on? What they know about things that actually work for people is appalling. Most of my MD colleagues, you know, including the ones at my medical school, I am just shocked at how they practice. And they're just so simple. They're, they really don't look at the science. They're not looking at the evidence. If they want to treat COVID. There is an emergency act that has been invoked in many of the countries of this world. What it allows the law to do, because the people have said that, yes, this is okay. The law says we are going to decide. A group of us who are going to be in charge of the emergency is going to decide because we need to do fast acting and fast planning and we don't have time to take a democratic decision on every step. A lot of corporations do it as well when they're trying to push through a product or a program. And the government has enacted this. So right now, because it's enacted, the president. Or the people that he puts on the task force are allowed to do what they want. Well, for the last four years, we haven't really had science or evidence or intelligence guiding most of these decisions. So what's happening, what's trickling down to the people that are, you know, the mandated um, uh implementers of it, they don't really know. So if someone is a doctor and says, I'm going to treat COVID using steam inhalation, that's not one of the preferred and approved protocols. So you can't do it because of the emergency act. You can argue Hmm. against it and say that as a physician, I choose to do this because I have A, B, and C evidence. Mm -hmm. But you have to be really aware of your laws. You have to be really aware yeah. that the way that you say it, I give health education. I don't give people prescriptions for Ayurveda. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because Ayurveda is not a licensed medical system in the United States. What I do is I give them health education. I have full mm-hmm. right to do that. So what does and that then mean they choose?
0: If if it's it's not a licensed medical system, does that mean it's illegal? I mean what 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 does it actually mean? Well, what is there's the actual- no law
1: that says hmm. there's no law that says that any of the other medical systems are illegal. Mm-hmm. What it says is that modern medicine is the only science-based system. And uh-huh. if you want to have your thing, if your thing, whether it's steam inhalation or it's a homeopathic right. remedy, you have to show us in our language, the dominant language, what it is. If you want something to be passed, you need to translate it to English. You know what I mean? California, there's a little bit of Spanish, but basically English. If you can't show it in English, I don't want to hear it in Finnish or in Swahili. I want Mm -hmm. to hear it in English. That's the law in the United States. So same thing with medical systems. You need to show that it works. So osteopathy did that. They went Mm -hmm. through all of the steps And in the 70s, they were able to show that what they practice is no less than the medical system. And so a physician in the United States is an MD or a DO. Chiropractors were not able to do it. Naturopaths were not able to do it. So in all 50 states, they are not licensed. In Washington, Oregon, California, naturopaths are licensed doctors. So they can call themselves doctors, they can practice legally. In the other states, they said, well, let's go from the other side. Instead of saying what's legal, let's talk about what's not illegal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we want a harbor, a safe harbor that what we do is not illegal. And try to, you know, understand mm-hmm. that there's a nuance between what's legal and what's not illegal. Mm-hmm. Got it? So it's it is legal for me to carry a gun. It is not illegal for me to wave the gun around in the air. It is illegal for me to wave that gun and point it at you because now it's called assault. Right. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, the whole battery and assault thing that you feel that there's an intention of harm. So that law in terms of medicine comes to the where there is a not illegal set of um, states, and those are called the safe harbor states of health freedom. I as a patient... I, as a patient, have the right to choose what kind of medicine I want to use. So if I'm in Washington, Idaho, New Mexico, Minnesota, California, there's 12 states total. I can say that I want to use, yes. And so if you want to use homeopathy, you are allowed to use homeopathy. If you want to use Ayurveda, you're allowed to. That's why you'll see so many Ayurvedic, homeopathic, yoga therapy, uh, chiropractic, so many different Mm -hmm. Um, medical systems being set up in all, you know, you go to Santa Cruz and there's like streets where you just see different, different, different healers up and down the road. And so this is a safe harbor state where you live. And it's really important that people understand that they have the right to do it. They should know the law and they should say, this is my right to use homeopathy. It is the people who should have stood up for homeopathy when it was being poo-pooed by the mainstream conservative MD doctors. Mm-hmm. Same thing in Rhode Island and in Maine and in several you know, um, states of this uh, country. Those safe
0: harbor states are really important. I so know the about that and I and I wouldn't have guessed that California was one just because of the sort of horror stories I've heard from doctors who uh, who work here or who worked here and and had to leave because it became so hard to practice.
1: So I'm going to say something that um you know makes me unpopular. <laughs> I think people who are in the field acting like experts need to do their freaking homework. And there's too many people who are sitting in academic medical centers or working as doctors in one of those other medical systems who are just absolutely blind and stupid about the laws. And I include Mm -hmm. 99% of Ayurvedic physicians in the USA that way. There are organizations that are organizing Ayurveda, but they haven't been able to make any forward movements because the people that are in charge that sit on the board of directors or the executive director or whatever, they just don't read the laws, they don't understand the laws, and they don't get educated about them. So what do they, they need don't to know? know?
0: What, what should they know that they don't?
1: Well, they should know about the health freedom laws. They should know the laws in their state. They should understand that education is guided by the U.S. Department of Education. Well, was until this last uh, secretary came in. But... <laughs> Um, They They don't know their rights,
0: basically. They don't know. They don't know their
1: rights. They don't know what's state to state and what's federal. They Uh don't know what's governed across the philosophy of health education versus what is registration versus what is licensure. Licensure is for a medical system. Registration is for a person. The schools are registered Or the schools are not registered. What does it mean if you're not registered? What does it mean if you are registered? What are you allowed to do? What does it allow Mm -hmm. your students to do? Students think that just because they attend a school of Ayurveda, it means that they can practice Ayurveda in the U.S., but they don't Mm -hmm. understand that Ayurveda is not a licensed medical system, nor is homeopathy in most places. Mm-hmm. It is uh, allowed in the safe harbor states. Um, they don't understand what the parameters are for obtaining their drugs. I can go yeah. and order any kind of Ayurvedic drugs for my patients to take by not writing a prescription, but by giving them education that this is what I would advise them to do. They're mm-hmm. paying for health education advice, they're not paying for medical advice. Mm-hmm. So understanding the rubric to use, understanding what is safe for them, understanding that when I tell them, I am not guaranteeing them as their primary care doctor to take this. I'm advising them and I'm telling them that they need to do their own education and homework and then choose it for themselves. And I make them sign an agreement to that effect. Right. And so um, that education, when it's lacking, is why people... Um, get so angry, and then they get so like accusatory of everyone else. One of the things in the United States that needs to shift is that patients think that it's everyone else's job to take care of their brain and their body. Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, my mental health. You know what? Your mental health is your responsibility. You cannot blame COVID. You cannot blame the government. You cannot blame Trump or the television or anything else, it's your job to take care of your mental health. And if you don't have it, and that affects your family, your community, your children, your spouse, your work, that's your fault. It is your
0: responsibility to take care of it. So we we were talking about Ayurveda before. I know we're getting, we're, we're gone past, um, past 45 minutes here, but, that, I think that's a really important point that you made earlier when we were talking offline about Ayurvedic medicine. That it is not just about the treatments; it's also about your lifestyle and maintaining your own mental health. And could you just say and that fortifying just, it? Yeah.
1: So to fortify your mental health is one of the most important aspects of Ayurveda. Ayurveda says that ninety percent of the diseases that happen in your body happen when your mind is not settled and -hmm. your gut is not optimal so take care of your mind and your gut you know there's a book called the second brain that talks about the connection between your brain and your immune system and the molecules that travel between your brain and your gut and your gut and your brain and the different hormones and, and neurotransmitters but also the food and so ayurveda says fortify your brain Understand what foods fortify your brain. And I'm not talking about these powders and various um, supplements. I'm talking about whole foods, I'm talking about routines. Ayurveda, science of food is not about just the chemicals that you take in. It's about the time of day, where your food comes from, the processing and you understanding the processing, the combinations, the times of day that you should and should not eat, what you should follow your food with and what you should start your food with, the order in which you take your food, and not just the combinations of different foods, but how you should prepare them according to your own epigenetics. It is so um, strong in its guidance that it actually helps people not only prevent disease, but it actually takes people out of disease states. So I have people that come to me with chronic diseases. I help them get mentally fortified if they're not mentally strong, if they're making, so I just had a patient who had, um, she's had actually poisoning from a, um, a compound they use for radiology scans. And so she, you know, had that scan and she got poisoned. She she's got you know floppy arms, tired arms. Her body has completely uh, kind of decomposed. She can't get out of bed. She's depressed. And I talked with her about her mental health and what she's doing, and tried to get her on target she can't do it she's depressed she blames everyone else it's the doctor's fault who gave her the scan it's the radiologist's fault that gave her the scan it's the insurance it's everyone else's fault it's not her fault Mm -hmm. she's a victim and i tried to work with her and i finally said to her when you get out of the mode i am trying to help you i didn't even charge her that much because she just you know she doesn't have an income right now i just wanted to help her if she's not willing to do the work i said it is not my job to do the work of pulling your brain out of the sewer you are in a place where you hate everyone and everything and you think the world is against you i that's not my job. That is a job of your soul coming into your body to be on this planet as a human being. If you can't do that, that's not my responsibility. And I will help you, but I will not be the person whose fault it is when you
0: can't get up. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that is so not how Americans see doctors. <laughs> that's you know, that's that's sort of the antithesis of we have this view here that, I mean to in my mind it's 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 more of a religion. It's really that people go to doctors thinking that they're going that that they're that they're promised a cure kind of that's probably overstating it, but but that it is their responsibility. That that's it's true. not You but said it right. correctly. Right. Yeah. It's um
1: and and it is part of the entire game because the pharmaceutical industry needs you to be dependent so that you will blindly take the medicine they tell you i have hundreds of patients um i think you saw one of them on on youtube there's a group called modern aging and the host had really bad blood pressure problems and so i just told her here do this and do this and uh, she was like oh i um uh and then i said just do it and see what happens You know, she did an entire episode that you can see on YouTube about how she went through this entire program and how her blood pressure has been cured. She had been told by the doctors she needed to take this blood pressure medicine for the rest of her life. She didn't like it. There were days when she wouldn't take the medicine because it kind of makes her feel funny or she has to pee more. There were all kinds of issues with the medicine, but she was taking it because the doctor said that for the rest of your life, you need to take it. Mm -hmm. And once you're over 40, you kind of say, okay, well, it's for the rest of my life. Okay, I'll take it. And what they've got is... Is a captive buyer. Yeah. yeah. You know, whether the pill is 10 cents or $10, they've got a captive buyer. So I had her take um, the steps that I had told her. She's off her medicines. She went to her mainstream doctor, which I told her obviously to do. I never tell people to sideswipe their mainstream doctor.
0: Mm-hmm. She
1: went to the doctor and she said, Hi. And he checked the pre- pressure and he said, Okay, um, you're fine. She said, Okay, I need to tell you something. I haven't been taking these medicines for a month. He's mm-hmm. like, What? said, yeah, you just said my pressure's fine. Will you check it again? He said, yeah, you're normotensive. She said, so what about my blood pressure medicine? He goes, um, uh, um, uh. she <laughs> said, you told me you told me, you, I would need to take it for life. What's going on? And he said, well, you know, there are times when mm-hmm. uh, things happen mm-hmm. that we can't predict. And, 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 and this happens with my cancer patients that get up and go back to the doctor and say, you told me I had stage four cancer. You told me I had cancer that was terminal. I want you to do another scan, another whatever, biopsy scan, blood test, whatever, you know, they use to um, check it. Usually it's a scan. And when they see the cancer's not there, they say, doctor, you are the authority. You are the person that knows. Tell me how did this happen? You are the one that gave me the diagnosis that this is permanent. Tell me what happened. And the doctors don't know. So if you're such an authority, then how yeah. did you not uh, give that person you know a a diagnosis same thing with neurological diseases you know as a neuroscientist i see so many people with neurological diseases that are told oh it's permanent i've been told that this is in my genetics i've been told this is in my you know whatever whatever this is permanent it will never get better i can only take this experimental therapy for a clinical study i can never get better i have to take this medicine but eventually the disease will progress in ayurveda you don't progress if the disease progresses You progress when the disease regresses. Mm -hmm. You know, the emphasis is on wellness. And there are plenty of people in my practice who get better from neurological diseases because we don't take the philosophy that the doctor knows everything. We take the philosophy that you are the expert of your own body. And I'm here guiding you with principles that you haven't yet um, incorporated into your, you know, the wisdom of you. You're the expert of you, but you don't have this wisdom yet. Let's put it in and and implement it. And people shift things and they own it. And then I have to step back and say, okay, so how does that make the doctor, MD, the expert? And why is it the American people don't want to take responsibility over their own bodies and they want to leave it to the doctor? Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you why. It's because we want to live uh you know, think free wanton lives where we do whatever the heck we want and we're not responsible for it. Right? If my no kid goes out with a gun and shoots everyone. It's not my fault. It's my kid's fault. And if Mm -hmm. that kid happened to be on an antidepressant, it's not my fault. It's the doctor's fault. And if that kid went out because he was angry at my husband, it's not my fault. It's the alcohol's fault that my husband was drinking or the fact that he works at, you know, a gun company or Mm -hmm. whoever. It's Trump's fault. It's it's someone else's fault. It's not my fault that my kid went out and did something and people refuse to take that personal responsibility, but they want individual freedom for doing whatever they want. Right. This is an American right. phenomenon. So when you were talking about the power of doctors in terms of blindly believing them and therefore not getting the information that people need in society there are things that people need to know but they don't have the intellectual capacity to understand it i can talk mm-hmm. 20 times about the sensitivity and specificity of testing and covid kits and Mm -hmm. people still don't understand what that means. And so when I tell them that if the test is not set up in a way that is accurate, then it doesn't matter if you test positive because it doesn't mean anything because 40% of the time it's right and 60% of the time it's wrong. And they're like, what does that mean? And I'll say, okay, let me put it in a different language. You take the test, And this happens, this happens, is it right? Four times of 10 that you take it, it's correct. Six times that you take it, it's wrong. What does that mean? And so I explain it to them again and again, and they can't understand it. Then I say to them, you take the test in a clinic, right? They don't come to your home and give it to you. You take the test in a clinic. So when you take the test, the moment you walk out and you're exposed to someone in the clinic, do you realize that you just got exposed? So by the time you get the results of the test five days later, It's invalid because you took the test at nine o'clock, you got exposed at 10 Mm o'clock. So when you get the results three days later, you think you're negative and you go around and you're, you know, wearing no mask and you're hanging out and you're like, well, I tested negative. I tested negative. But at 10 o'clock, when you got infected, you're going to hold that incubation for 8, 10, 12 days before you start having symptoms. So you're actually positive positive not because the test was wrong but mm-hmm. because you got exposed after the test so that is an area of immunology in this particular disease that we are not explaining to people properly because they don't get
0: it right hmm. did you understand like how i'm seems, saying it so that it just it seems like a pretty simple thing to get though you're saying that when you explain that to people they're not they're not understanding it or That's right. And they're not
1: incorporating it into the conversation that journalists are giving to people saying, Go get tested. Go get tested. Yeah. Why should I go get tested for a test that's going to be wrong six out of 10 times? Right. Let's talk science. Let's talk evidence. Six out of 10 times, it's going to be a wrong result. Why should I go get tested? And if it's negative and I could get exposed the next moment, Right. right. then right. I'm actually having the disease, but walking around with it. Then what's the purpose of stating that you're negative? Why does it matter that you're negative? Right? right. The the third point that no one is saying, and this is you know, I'm I'm just gonna talk about some of the things relevant to the vaccine so that you have enough material for the podcast. So right. cut this little piece out that I'm saying. Okay. Um so so the third piece is that the biggest vectors, the people that transmit disease from one person to another person is called a vector. The biggest vectors in this entire game are the healthcare workers. So when you go into a healthcare worker to get tested, you're actually getting yourself more exposed.
0: Right. So you're upping your you chances. Yeah. Some,
1: so you think that one of the things they think about is what they did with pregnancy, you used to have to go to a doctor to find out you were pregnant back in the fifties and Mm sixties. What did they do? They developed something called a home pregnancy test. And those people that have like EPT or, you know, some of these other brand names, they made huge amounts of money. Yay. Capitalism, but they also delivered a need, which was for privacy when finding out about pregnancy, if they did the same thing and they said, I want to know my COVID, you know, test test, um, thing. I want a test that's going to work at least eight or 10 times out of, you know, 10 and, uh, sorry, eight or nine times out of 10. And and I'm going to do it from the privacy of my home where I'm not getting exposed so that the test result that I get three days from now, while I'm still sheltered in place, is an accurate test. I'm going to mail it in or I'm going to have it picked up by, you know, someone. Right. You don't have I'm to go into a healthcare center to have
0: to have that done.
1: Yeah. 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 No, back in the days when we didn't have emails and we used to have FedExes, there was something called a FedEx drop box yeah. where you would yeah. just go to a central location in your building or in the neighborhood. And you just drop it off. So people could put on their masks, walk outside and drop off the test kit. And someone comes once a day and picks up not one, but, you know, 100 in that neighborhood. These kind of models are so doable. Why is it that we haven't implemented why is it that with all the ingenuity that we have and all the opportunities to make money and all, all of the funding that's available to develop it, we're spending it all on pharmaceutical vaccines and not on different ways and different solutions for, you know, for things. Masks yeah. is another one. I know that masks don't prevent us and don't prevent the virus. They they help us to feel concerned for other members of society and help us to prevent virus from spreading in uh, the air and to other people who might be more vulnerable. I get that. But there's a way in which we could be making masks. Don't tell me there's not technology out there to make better masks, right? There's mm-hmm. also alternative medicines. If you really care about the people, then the public health official, VJ Murthy, the Surgeon General, whoever, you know, whoever's the, the person in charge of the people's health, the public's health, should have actually come out and said, though WHO, World Health Organization, has a committee in an area on traditional complementary integrative medicines, let's actively ask those people to come up with solutions, just like TCM found solutions for it in the
0: Wuhan case, right? Right away they of right questions. away they were using that, yeah.
1: And if I'm an expert and you're depending on me and you're saying, hey, Bhashwati, you're a doctor, we want to depend on you as an expert, then why don't those experts, people, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not an expert in this game because I'm not included on any committees, but... Um, for uh, For the thinkers, for the people that are actually sitting on the committees, why don't they feel the moral and ethical responsibility to go out and read more, know more, and present more wide options to the committees that are actually going to implement things? Because that actually would be responsible to the health of the public.
0: I I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking earlier about the guy who, you know, knew that he was making some ethical mistakes, but had a kid to put through college, like, they know how the game is played. And the people who are, who are funding the WHO, who are in charge of public health in the United States, they're not, their motivation is not, what I think is becoming pretty clear is their motivation is not the health of anybody, the motivation is really helping out the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, so if that's the case, then why do the public see them
1: as experts. If you see that that's the case, that's the big, you know, if I know that the editor of the medical journal that I look to for advice as my, my teacher, my guru, my, you know, my person that I look up to, if I know that that person is unreliable, then what does that mean for the journal? I have to stop Mm -hmm. uh, respecting JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, British Medical Journal, because they are not putting out high level papers that I can count on. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. what it means. That's what it requires us as doctors to do as the public around, you know, let's say the technical journals. And it requires the American public to do to say, you know what, I don't believe in X. So I will yeah. tell you, um, I have a lot of patients who are, quote unquote, VIPs or wealthy patients. And I have a lot of people who are very poor people who don't have financial means. And between them, what I see is that at both levels of you know, extremes, they have seen the world of hard knocks. They know how much corruption there is. And they say, I don't believe medical doctors. I would not go to mm-hmm. a medical doctor. I will not go. Out of the number of uninsured people, the 45 million people, mm-hmm. a lot of them don't have health insurance because they don't want to fund the system. They don't want to fund the system. And when they come to me and say, well, I want to see you as an alternative practitioner. And um, I like the fact that you have a medical background, but that you're open to other things. But I just want to tell you, I don't have insurance. What I tell them is, if you're going to stay in the United States, get catastrophic insurance. So state by state, there are programs that basically cover nothing but catastrophic insurance. Get Mm -hmm. one of those, because that way, if the bill... You know, I I don't know if you know what you know about emergency medicine, but there are laws in this country that if you happen to be in an accident, they have to, by law, take you in an ambulance to the hospital. They have to and they have to treat you. But then they charge you. So if they charge you three hundred thousand dollars and you don't have it, you're screwed. You're bankrupt. They will sell. They will take everything you own and everything Mm -hmm. that your spouse owns and everything that your kids own. Maybe not your kids, but definitely your spouse. No. And they will sell it and they will make that money back. And some of the charges that they charge for aren't even real. They're oh, they're yeah. No, 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 I've seen. charges. Yeah. No, it's right. It's so I tell people get your catastrophic insurance. I work within the system because. I really do respect many things in modern medicine and the brilliance of it. And even though it's some of it's cunning, it's actually very innovative what they've done. But what I want is for the health of the people. So those patients teach me that they don't trust the medical doctors. They mm. go to them, they don't even tell them that they're taking homeopathy or Ayurveda or doing yoga. Why? Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell your doctor? Because the doctors are kind of idiots, they don't know about this stuff. Or they'll say, the doctors are closed-minded, they don't know about this stuff. Or the doctor will stop seeing me if I tell yeah. her that yeah. I'm taking these other things. Yeah. So what, what if does that mean for They'll the try expert? to talk you out of it. Yeah. So what does that mean for these doctors? How can you be an expert unless you know what all the options are out there? And so now we go back to your initial question, which says... Well, what do you think of the people that say, well, those are not evidence-based options. So those are not real medicine. And that's why we don't need to know about the world of quackery, right? Mm-hmm. Why should we have to know those things? And my response to that is, you don't know what quackery is. Quackery actually exists more in modern medicine than it does around, you know, the other medical systems, Um and if you really want to be an expert, you need to see what clinically works. There is overwhelming information that homeopathy works, that Ayurveda works, that traditional Chinese medicine works, that chiropractic, osteopathic, when done by the right people. How do you find the right people? It's never by those ads and commercials and websites. Mm-hmm it's always by word of mouth yeah I use someone it worked for me I told my aunt about it it worked for her and now I'm giving that referral to you I have always used word of mouth I don't use big you know advertising schemes ever first of all it's mm-hmm. illegal doctors are not supposed to advertise themselves. Um, It's a law in the US, but it's also not respectful to the art. So if you want to know, well, where's the evidence? The evidence is in the patients that got better. It is not in the randomized clinical study. The randomized clinical study is simply there. So the FDA has, you know, do you know how much they charge to um, process a new drug application? If you want to consider anything
0: I know it's a lot
1: right now. It's technically public information, but they hide it on their website. Um, or they don't hide it. They mask it. It's $1.09 million just to file an application. Wow. After that, you have to show the proof. So mm-hmm. if I want to show that vitamin C works for something, do you think I'm going to file an application? Right. Of course, well, not. Well, you can't patent vitamin C, can you? Right. So how are you going to make your money back? And if people just understood that they would shut the fuck up about what is real evidence, because the real evidence is out there in the patients that are getting better. It is not in the clinical studies. It is not in the medical journals. And it is not in the way that the experts who are ignorant about everything else are speaking about it. You know, the WHO is just opening a new global center for traditional complementary integrative medicine. I'm really looking forward to seeing how they're going to position this and how much the pharmaceutical companies are going to have control over what the agenda of that center yeah. is. Yeah. But if they can get medicines from all over the world to be – understood highlighted and seen and if they can get something other than the biomedical cochrane databases as evidence then people can actually start learning about options that are out there Mm -hmm. i meet patients who have done so much researching about their particular disease and when they come to me i love it doctors say oh they went to dr google how ridiculous i'm the expert who are they thinking they are going and i say to them you know what I think it's absolutely arrogant for you to think that you know more about this disease than the patient does because the patient is housing the disease. The patient knows more. The patient is the expert. You are just a bystander who is going to use your limited knowledge to try to help that patient. So I think that arrogance that most MDs have is completely out of place. And when patients ask me, what do you specialize in? I say, I specialize in the patient. I said, no, no, no. But I mean, like, what, what specialty? What, like, like, are you a dermatologist? Are you a cardiologist? Like, what are you? I say, I specialize in the patient because it's you that's housing the disease. I want to understand you and what it is about you that feels that you need to give shelter to this disease. Let's figure out a way where we can shift your mind, your body, and your soul so that you don't need to house this disease anymore. Would you like to have me on that journey with you? If they say, no, I don't believe in what you're doing, I say, okay, that's fine. And they leave. And I wish them well. And if they say, actually, I've never thought about it that way before. Okay, I'm willing to do it. I say, it's, the journey's hard. Because you got to figure out how to let go of those things that you hold very dear to the definition of who you are. But if you're willing to do the journey and realize that your soul is there and it's part of medicine, you can shift. And when people shift, it is so amazing. And it is the it's the greatest wealth i have is the fact that i've been able to witness such power in human beings that have shifted themselves out of disease and that is why i keep working that is why i continue to be a troublemaker because i want to advocate for patients to find those kind of roads and find those kind of um those those catalysts if you will of people of healers and they're not going to find it for as long as pharmaceutical medicines blindly dominate over their ability to see themselves as experts so you know i hope that's i hope what that's I've a said fantastic is yes that's
0: a fantastic answer and i feel like we could we could go on and there are so many different tangents here but um i'm gonna let you go it'll be a good thank you. It's Thanks. a good ending, actually, to this. Uh, to it's this part, podcast it, it's perfect because it, it really wraps it up, brings it back to the beginning. Um, thank you so much. This has really been fantastic.
1: You're welcome.